Good afternoon. I think we'll get started. Welcome to those. This this is our second out of three uh, fellow presentations as they finish their third year of their fellowship training here in hematology and oncology. Um, welcome to those participating remotely. I will read some disclosures on Dr. Sullivan. He has no financial interests, no off-label or investigational use of drugs will be recommended. He is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity. And for CME credit, please use the activity code, which will be posted at the end of the talk, and it, as well as outside. So Dr. Sullivan was originally educated as a young lad at Roxbury Latin School in West Roxbury, Mass. He went on to Princeton, majoring in psychology, and wrote a thesis on motivating teenagers, which I hope will come in handy eventually for you <laughs> with your youngins, while pitching for the varsity baseball team. He then went on to um, the medical school in the Bronx at uh, Albert Einstein and did residency and did research using RNA-seq to profile HIV-associated diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. He, sorry, he did medical school here at Dartmouth and then residency and then came back here for his fellowship where he began right off the bat participating in hematology research, starting with analyzing readmission rates after bone marrow transplants with Dr. Meehan, outcomes using different doses of donorubicin for AML induction with Dr. Lansigan, and more recently serving as co-PI on two trials for high-risk MDS and AML in the elderly. The latter I'm sure we'll be hearing more about. Without further delay, I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Matthew Sullivan. Hi, everyone, and um, thanks for coming. Um, I guess as pretty standard, I'm going to give my disclosures that Mary already said. Um, unfortunately, I don't have any financial interests and I'm not receiving any payments. I do intend to discuss some off-label. I do not intend to recommend any use of off-label drugs, but we will be discussing some early phase trials um, in which they were used. Um, so today I'm going to talk about um, an unmet need in the world of malignant hematology, which is acute myeloid leukemia, specifically in the elderly. Now, AML at any age is an awful disease, but it is particularly devastating in the elderly population because these patients do poorly with, with the intensive therapy required to cure AML um, and are frequently not candidates for ultimately receiving an allogeneic stem cell transplant. Um, now, this is a very large topic, um, especially to review in one hour, so I'm going to try to really focus on the highlights. Specifically, I'm going to talk, try to explain the factors that make AML in the elderly such a bad disease. Next, we'll we talk about the outcomes with standard treatment um, with both intensive induction therapy and as well as more palliative approaches. And these will be the current standards of care. And then in the final slides, we'll briefly talk about a few drugs that are currently under development which may become useful in the, in the future. 
Um, I'm not going to get into great detail about the standard treatment of AML, except to give you a sense of how intense it is. Uh, the hematologists here um, understand this well. First, after diagnosis, patients get induction therapy, which is referred to as 7 plus 3. Um, it requires hospital admission and includes seven days of high-dose chemotherapy, um, followed by about another 20 days of inpatient stay for recovery. And this is in the best-case scenario. During this time, patients can and almost always do experience a wide range of complications, including infection and other toxicities from chemo and even death. After discharge, about four to eight weeks later, the patients are readmitted for consolidation chemo. This is usually a five, day, five days of chemo in a row. This is repeated for up to four consolidation cycles or until the patient undergoes an allogeneic stem cell transplant. As we will talk about, this intensive treatment is poorly tolerated by the elderly. And even if they do get through it, the results are, are still unsatisfactorily poor. Therefore, we need better treatments in this patient population speci specifically. Now, the first question is, who is elderly? In a room with a few of my attendings here, I'm too smart to throw out a number. Um, and it's true. In clinical practice, we see 75-year-olds who could pass for 50, and we see 50-year-olds with, co with bad comorbidities that preclude them from receiving intensive treatment. So in short, there is no absolute number that defines elderly. However, in most of the trials that I'll be talking about, they use 60 or 65 to define elderly. This is a graph of the incidence of AML across age groups. I added it here just to show that AML in the elderly is not a rare condition. You can see that this incidence really starts to rise after about age 50. And with our aging population, this is not a problem that is going away anytime soon. Now, let's get back to how the elderly do with intensive treatment. The short answer is not very well. This is a slide comparing retrospective outcomes stratified by age. The blue line is patients under 65, while the red line depicts patients over 65, who all underwent the same exact intensive uh, chemotherapy. Please note two things about these, these graphs. First, the elderly curve drops off much quicker in the first few months, presumably due to the toxicity of the intense treatment. And the second is that these patients, even if these patients do survive induction and consolidation, the survival plateau, or cure rate, is much higher for younger patients, despite receiving the same treatment for presumably the same disease. The cure rate, based on this one review, is below 20% for the elderly, and while for young patients, it's roughly around 40%. Now, in medicine, nearly every disease has worse outcomes in the elderly, so this should not be surprising. However, in AML, the difference is quite pronounced, and reasons for these differences are important to understand. In general terms, we can break it down into two factors. First, patient-related factors, such as frailty, comorbidities, performance status. And second, disease-related factors, um, such as the biology, um, both of which are working against the elderly with AML. There we go. Um, by patient-related factors, I mean age and comorbidities. Um, and these matter because there's a real risk of doing harm with intensive therapy. 
Induction therapy causes suffering for all patients and at least a 30-day hospital stay. Anecdotally, those who go into treatment with poor performance statuses suffer even more. So the first data I really want to talk about is in line with the do no harm motto. This study from 2010 gives us an idea of the mortality associated with induction and whether we can predict who will suffer the most um, from induction chemo. This study looked at patients over 70 years old treated at MD Anderson. It retrospectively identified four variables, age over 80, ECOG performance status of two or three, complex karyotype, which go, speaks to the biology of the disease, and renal function. And they found these to be significant predictors of, early of high early mortality within eight weeks of starting induction therapy. Because this is retrospective study and that the decision to use intensive 7 plus 3 induction had already been made, um, I want to sort of point out that though there were patients, these were all patients that passed the initial eyeball test and that the obviously frail patients were already excluded. So here are the results. Of particular interest are the results of the eight-week mortality. I was actually pretty shocked at this because um, this hasn't been my, quite my experience, but I believe it. Um, overall, eight-week mortality was roughly 40% in the whole group. In patients with three or more risk factors, the eight-week mortality was 71%, and their median survival was only two weeks. Mind you that these two weeks were spent in the hospital suffering from the side effects of the, the intense chemotherapy. The point here is that there are groups of patients whose short-term survival and their toleration of induction chemo can be predicted to be very poor. And we should be asking ourselves, should we be treating patients such as the high-risk group when over 70% of them will die within the first two months? Should we be treating the second highest group with an early mortality of 55%? Can't we spare them the toxicity of induction chemo in the last weeks of their life? Here's the longer term results of this same study. I put this in here to show that the differences in these groups remain significant beyond eight weeks. It's not like if you can get the patients through the eight weeks, um, they'll have a chance at long term good outcomes. Um, and the answer is no. Um, you know, this, the, the, the line on the far left indicates the, the people with the highest risk of mortality, and nearly none of them had long-term survival. Um, moving on to the second factor that makes, that makes AML in the elderly so bad is its biology. Now, AML is not one disease. And with better understanding of the molecular pathways, we have identified types of AML that are e either easier or harder to treat based on cytogenetics, molecular mutations, and antecedent hematologic conditions such as MDS, or myeloproliferative disorders, or AML that stems from previous chemo treatment for another cancer. Elderly AML has a much lower response rate, even to intensive treatment, than in younger patients. And this is somewhat explained because the elderly are more likely to have poor prognostic factors, such as the previously mentioned adverse cytogenetics or molecular mutations or antecedent 
hematologic conditions. Regardless of age, these risk factors are bad for AML patients, and it just so happens that the elderly have bad prognostic features more often. To back up my claims, here's a graph of the percentage of patients falling into the different cytogenetic risk categories based on age. The point is that as these patients get older, more and more of them have AML that are characterized by having high-risk cytogenetics. By age 75, 51% are in the unfavorable group, and only 4% are in the favorable group. Also note that this slide is only cytogenetic risk groups and does not factor in antecedent MDS or treatment-related AML, which would have further made the elderly group even more unfavorable. Why does cytogenetics matter? This paper reported retrospective outcomes of the elderly patients, defined as age over 60, treated with induction chemo based on their cytogenetic risk classification. It did not factor in prior MDS or treatment-related AML into the risk classifications. The breakdown of the risk classifications in the study group is shown. 7% had low-risk cytogenetics, while 35% had high-risk cytogenetics. Here are the results based on age and risk group. This shows that patients with high-risk cytogenetics showed poor responses to intensive induction. Their responses were only between 15 and 20 percent, which is pretty poor considering the sacrifice involved with going through induction therapy. On the other hand, for patients with intermediate or low risk, the responses were two to three times higher at 40 to 60 percent. Now, let's look at the long-term outcomes of this study. The point here is that patients with high-risk cytogenetics have very poor long-term outcomes. While we may see a plateau in the low and standard-risk patients, we do not see one for the high-risk patients. Therefore, we are not curing these patients. In the low-risk group, it appears that nearly 40% were cured, while nearly no patients in the high-risk group survived um, past three or four years. Now, to summarize my argument about intensive therapy in, in elderly AML, there are both patient-related factors as well as biologic factors associated with the, with the AML that can predict very poor outcomes. I would argue that there is a group of elderly AML with good performance statuses and good risk cytogenetics that may benefit from intensive therapy. However, for the others, I think that we need to use different approaches even if this means we are treating with palliative intent without the prospect of curing diseases. This way, we avoid suffering associated with the intensive treatment, and we will talk about one such strategy. So the next standard treatments for, patient, um, for patients with AML that I'd like to talk about are the hypomethylating agents, such as decitabine and azacitidine. These are given daily for five to seven days every 28 days on an outpatient basis. They are relatively well tolerated, but the downside is there is no hope for curing the AML. But rather, we aim to slow the disease process down and extend the patient's life while maintaining a reasonable quality of life. Now, there are other options that we're not going to discuss today, such as low-dose cytarabine, um, but I chose to omit them because, for the most part, um, the hypomethylating agents have, have largely replaced those other treatments um, in standard practice. 
First, a slide about the mechanism of action. Um, epigenetic changes, such as aberrant DNA methylation, have an important place in the pathogenesis of AML. The most studied change of DNA methylation is the silencing of tumor suppressor genes by hypermethylating hyper, hypermethylation of the CPG islands within the promoter regions. In contrast to structural changes such as mutation or deletion causing permanent loss of gene expression, epigenetic changes can be pharmacologically reversed, resulting in gene re-expression and restoration of normal cellular function. Azacytidine and decitabine are cytidine analogs in which a carbon atom has been replaced by a nitrogen atom. Originally, they were intended to be cytotoxic drugs. However, it was discovered that at very low doses of these drugs, um, could cause DNA demethylation by inactivation of DNA methyltransferase 1, the enzyme responsible for methylation of the DNA. In this way, a low dose of azacytidine or decitabine, collectively referred to as hypomethylating agents, is able to, re to induce re-expression of the previously silenced genes and reactivation of the cell cycle regulating genes that were initially silenced due to the hypermethylation may induce cell differentiation, redu reduce proliferation, and increase apoptosis of the cancer cells. Now let's talk about their use in clinical practice and compare the efficacy and outcomes between induction, intensive induction, and the hypomethylating agents to show that this is a valid option. Unfortunately, we have very little prospective data comparing induction versus hypomethylating agents in the elderly. This was a retrospective study of 671 patients over the age of 65 with AML at MD Anderson. These were the outcomes. Now, of course, interpret with caution as there was likely a selection bias and also that the arms were heavily weighted towards the chemotherapy arms. Now, I, want, I know this is a busy table, so I'll summarize the important facts in the next slide. The metrics that I want to focus on are complete response rates early death rates, and median overall survival. The CR rate was higher for the intensive chemotherapy arm, 42% to 28%, which we might expect given the difference in the intensity of treatment. The early death rate was higher in the chemo arm, 18% to 11%, but this difference was not statistically significant. This is somewhat unexpected since we would, have, since we would hope that the less intense strategy was more tolerable. However, given the retrospective nature of the study, it is likely that the sicker patients were not offered intensive treat induction and were therefore treated with the hypomethylating agents. But lastly, the median overall survival, the metric I care most about, was equal, 6.5 months to 6.7 months. I mean, this shows that both groups did very poorly. The only difference was the amount of chemotoxicity the patients experienced during those final months of their lives. One more important thing to note, though, about this study was that when they did subgroup analysis based on cytogenetic risk groups, they did find that patients with low-risk cytogenetics did significantly better with induction than with hypomethylating agents. And that was quite pronounced. It was 14 months versus four months. I would explain this difference based on the fact that the intense chemo is probably curing a certain percentage of these patients in the low risk cytogenetic group. So we should still consider intensive therapy in the elderly under the right circumstances. Now on the flip side, 
Um, also in the subgroup analysis, based on cytogenetics, the poor risk group actually did worse with intense induction and better with hypomethylating agents. The one-year survival for chemo is 17%, while it is 26% for epigenetic therapy. Similarly, similarly to my rationale in the low-risk group, I would say that in the high-risk group, we aren't curing any patients with intensive chemo, and therefore we're exposing them to the toxicities of induction and the higher risk of early death without really any benefit of potential cure. This is further proof that these patients with high-risk cytogenetics are going to do poorly no matter what we treat them with outside of an allogeneic stem cell transplant, and that we have very little chance of curing them. This might provide justification for using less intense strategies and the better tolerated hypomethylating agents in this patient group, even in patients who are otherwise fit for induction. However, you know, clinically and you know, on the ward, um, I fully admit that this is sometimes difficult to do in practice, as it concedes that the patient will die from their disease um, and that we are not using our most intense treatment. It is especially difficult in patients with good performance statuses who could live another 20 years if it weren't for their AML. But um, that's mostly why we need better treatments. So moving on. So that's a short summary of what treatment options are available to the elderly at the current time. Neither is particularly satisfying. So for the next part of my talk, I'd like to discuss some of the newer treatments under development and in clinical trials for AML, specifically in the elderly. As we saw, there is a lot of room for improvement. And for the scientists in the crowd, this is where you guys come in. This slide sort of is an attempt to summarize all the different pathways that, and, and targets that are now available for AML. But um, it's only a very small number of them. So with our growing understanding of the molecular pathways that drive AML come new opportunities to use molecularly targeted agents. I have chosen just a few to talk about today. I picked some of the drugs that I'm most excited about, even though most of the data on these agents comes from early, early phase clinical trials and none are approved for treatment of AML. But this may be what's on the horizon. Note that this is by no means meant to be a comprehensive list, but only a few that I have chosen. Polo-like kinases are a family that have been shown to play a key role in mitotic checkpoint regulation and cell division. Physiologically, polo-like kinase 1 is expressed only in dividing cells with peak expression during the G2M phase. Polo-like kinase 1 has been shown to be overexpressed in a range of human cancers, including non-small cell cancer, prostate, ovarian, breast, colorectal, as well as AML. Inhibition of this, of this protein results in G2M arrest and subsequently apoptosis in the lab. So this was a, small, a very small study of 87 elderly patients that was published in Blood in 2014. It studied elderly patients not eligible for intensive therapy, although most patients had relatively good performance statuses. It randomized patients to low-dose cytarapine with or without the polokinase inhibitor. 
As we might expect with elderly AML, very few, very few patients had low-risk cytogenetics and 40% had high-risk cytogenetics. So this was a pretty high-risk group. In addition, 50% had secondary AML, meaning they had antecedent MDS or another hematologic disease. One might criticize the trial for using cytarabine instead of a hypomethylating agent, um, but that combination is currently under investigation. Anyways, the combination treatment showed promising results compared to the control arm. The median event-free survival was 5.6 months in the combination versus only 2.3 months with single-agent cytarabine. There is also a significant, roughly 20%, who have not progressed at two years. And this is impressive compared to um, even the hypomethylating agent data. In terms of overall survival, there was, a, there was also a benefit to using the polo-like polo kinase inhibitor as it increased overall survival from 5.2 months to 8.0 months. Again, we see a decent proportion of the patients alive extending almost to three years, which is quite impressive for such a well-tolerated regimen. I think the next step is identifying patients who may benefit the most from this drug by finding biomarkers or molecular profiles that predict clinical response. And besides efficacy, in this sorry, and, and besides efficacy, in this patient population, we also have to be very concerned about toxicity. This slide summarizes the reported findings. The take-home here is that the addition of the polo-like kinase inhibitor did not add significant toxicity to the low-dose cytarabine regimen, and that it was generally well-tolerated, with the exception of more incidents of febrile neutropenia and some GI side effects. However, there were very few patients who stopped taking the drug due to the side effects, and early death rates were equivalent between the two arms, albeit that the early death rates were still too high at 20% at 60 days. It will be interesting to see how these polo-like kinase inhibitors combine with the hypomethylating agents, which we know are superior to the low-dose cytarabine. IDH1, so now switching to a new drug on the horizon, IDH1 and IDH2 are critical enzymes involved in the Krebs cycle. And please, I'm not answering any questions on the Krebs cycle after this. <laughs> IDH1 is confined to the cytoplasm, while IDH2 works in the mitochondria. Studies have shown that activating mutations in IDH, either IDH, occur in about 15 to 20 percent of AML, and the presence of these mutations is, an, is a poor prognostic um, feature. It is thought that IDH mutations cause hypermethylation of the DNA, leading to malignancy. They occur in normal cytogenetic AML, but they've also been seen in other subtypes as well. Um, this, again, is a phase one study presented at ASH last December. Um, this has not been published to my, to my knowledge. It studied an IDH2 inhibitor in patients with a known IDH2 mutation. It studied patients who were not candidates for further intensive therapies and most had relapsed or progressed through a, pr a prior line of therapy. It studied this drug as a single agent. For a single agent, the results were quite promising. With a CR rate of roughly 20%, 
in the pretreated population. This compares favorably with other agents. More interesting is the amount of stable disease that they found, which was noted to be at about 45%. This is defined, stable disease is defined as patients who improved clinically and did not progress, but they did not have any change in their bone marrow, marrow blast count. Stable disease is common finding in solid tumors, um, but it's relatively rare in, in AML, with, which is such an aggressive disease that it, it tends to either respond or progress, but, but rarely stays sort of stable. Um, and this, this finding has not been explained. They, they don't quite understand how this IDH2 inhibitor got the disease to sort of stabilize. But, um, and these stable disease patients did actually pretty well. Despite not decreasing their bone marrow blast count, their peripheral blood counts rose in some cases, and the stable disease was maintained over, a peer, over several months. As I said, this is unusual because AML is not usually a disease that stays stable. Um, this plot shows the duration of the response, or the time to progression, um, while on these IDH2 inhibitors. It shows that those who responded, or even stayed stable, could maintain their response for several months. The median duration was 6.9 months. Unfortunately, survival data has not yet been reported. The purple represents the stable disease. And when looking at it from afar, it appears that, those, that they did pretty well. And the blue and the yellow bars represent patients in, the, in complete response, who achieved complete response. Again, remember that this is a single agent activity with a drug with, that's very well tolerated. IDH1 inhibitors have also been studied in the group of patients with IDH1 mutations. Um, and I think by identifying, this is just a sort of example of how um, identifying more and more specific mutations um, within AML, we'll be able to more effectively treat those diseases with less toxicity. Also, as I said before, the mutant IDH leads to hypermethylation in the cancer cells. So trials are ongoing now combining IDH, IDH inhibitors with hypomethylating agents, a combination that has shown some promise in the lab, and um, we await these results. Moving on to the next and the, and the last targeted molecule, small molecule um, is a BCL2 inhibitor. Of note, this drug, ABT199 um, is showing significant promise in CLL and other lymphoid malignancies and may prove beneficial in AML as well. The protein BCL2, as you may know, is an anti-apoptotic protein that provides resistance to cancer therapy. ABT199 inhibits its function. Clinically speaking, it was studied in combination with a hypomethylating agent in a phase one study in a dose-finding fashion. The study population was elderly patients who were not candidates for intensive therapy. The hypothesis is that BCL2 inhibitor would reduce resistance to other cytotoxic therapy, making them more effective. The results were presented again at ASH in 2015, last December. The study treated patients with either decitabine or azacitidine, and either a low dose or a high dose of the study drug. Unfortunately, only the response rates are available at the current time, so we don't have any of the information about the metrics that we are really interested in, such as overall survival. But these results are impressive. 
When we combine complete response and complete response with incomplete count recovery, we see that 14 out of 22 patients, or 64% of evaluable patients, achieved a CR. This is impressive compared to other agents for this disease. And again, this is combining the, the drug with one of the hypomethylating agents. And the toxicity of the BCL2 inhibitor is manageable. There were no unexpected side effects in this small cohort of patients. And while there was an over 50% incidence of febrile neutropenia, this is not significantly different from studies using hypomethylating agents alone in this study, in this patient population. There was also no clear signal from the study that whether azacitidine or decitabine was, was superior. Um, and in addition, there was no added toxicity to the higher dose. So future studies are already ongoing, combining in, in bigger fashion. Um, and we'll have to wait for those results. So lastly, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about another novel approach to treating AML. We've discussed several small molecule inhibitors, but now I would like to discuss the use of antibody and drug conjugates. Unlike in B-cell diseases with CD20, identifying targetable antigens on AML blasts has been difficult. Over the past years, researchers have identified CD33 and CD123 as somewhat specific for the AML blasts. And I want to focus on, on attempts to target CD33 today. Specifically, CD33 is seen on 88% of AML blasts at variable levels of expression. It is only rarely seen on healthy bone marrow blasts, blasts, making it an ideal target for treatment with lower risk of off-target side effects. In fact, the last drug approved for the treatment of AML was called Mylotarg, or Gemtuzumab, and this was a drug antibody conjugate against CD33 as well. However, this was removed from the market due to high incidence of liver toxicity, although this may be making a comeback um, in some studies in Europe right now. Um, I chose CD33 to talk about today, but there are other targets and other methods of attacking them. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, I chose CD33 to talk about today, but there are other targets and other methods of attacking them. Another somewhat specific target is CD123, for which we are currently opening a trial here at Dartmouth. In addition, CART T-cell therapy is being attempted against these antigens as well. I, did, I tried to, but I, I couldn't include the data about the CART T-cell because it's really in its infancy in AML, and um, there just wasn't the data to, to actually talk about. But um, that's been a a real game changer in a lot of lymphoid diseases and hopefully it'll make its way into AML as well. So I added this slide to explain how a drug antibody conjugate works. A chemo drug is bound to a, the FC portion of an antibody. The antibody binds to its target antigen and upon binding the antibody along with the attached chemo is internalized and transported to the lysosomes, where the link between the chemo and the antibody is broken via proteolytic cleavage of the linker. The active drug is then released into the cytoplasm, where it exerts its effect. This has the advantage of dosing chemotherapeutic agents only into the target cells, without systemic toxicity to other healthy cells, in theory at least. Now, 
So the newest generation of the anti-CD33 drug <laughs> antibody conjugate is currently named SGN33A. It differs from Mylotarg in that the chemo drug it uses, um, in this case for SGN33A, it uses a compound called PBD. So, so far, the results um, are, again, promising, um, based on a small phase one study, again, reported at ASH last year. It used the study drug in combination with hypomethylating agent. In fact, we are opening um, a very similar trial for um, MDS in the elderly as well, uh, with, this, with this drug and, and with this regimen. Um, 24 patients who were... In, so back to this, um, this study that was presented, 24 patients who were unfit for intense treatment were enrolled. 45% had adverse cytogenetics, which is pretty typical for this patient population. Almost all were treatment naive. Here's a brief summary of the results. Unfortunately, like many of the other studies, um, we have to rely on response rate here so because we don't know the survival data. However, 65% of the patients achieved a complete response or a complete response with incomplete count recovery. Toxicities were generally well tolerated and mostly limited to infusion reactions to the drug. Specifically, keeping in mind the, the experience with mylotarg or gemtuzumab, um, they did not observe any increased liver toxicity, um, which is what plagued mylotarg initially. Um, so, and then there was something that I read yesterday, a letter in blood, um, that I didn't actually have time to officially include here, but that it was the level of expression of CD33 on the AML blast can predict benefit of adding mylotarg um, to a chemotherapy regimen. Um, the author noted that when patients had over 70% expression of CD33, it led to a much higher benefit of receiving mylotarg um, than those who had lower CD33 expression, who, um, whose benefit was much less. I mention this to show that in the future, I anticipate that this may be a standard test to identify patients who may most likely benefit from this type of treatment. Um, so what I'm hoping you will take away from this talk is that AML in the elderly um, is a common disease and that it's one of the largest unmet needs in malignant hematology. AML in the elderly poses a particularly difficult situation since the biology of the disease is worse and the elderly patients tolerate the aggressive therapies that we have now very poorly with high rates of early death due to toxicity and also a lot of associated suffering. Few advances have been made over the past 10 years or even the last 20 years, although the use of hypomethylating agents is now a good alternative to intensive therapy, but only leads to a median survival of about six to nine months. Therefore, newer agents and strategies are desperately needed. Today, we discuss just a few of these, such as IDH inhibitors, BCL2 inhibitors, polo-like kinase inhibitors, and drug antibody conjugates targeting antigens specific to the cancer cell. And I predict that with a better understanding of the molecular mutations and the pathways involved in, this, in the carcinogenesis, we will be able to more effectively treat AML with less toxicity. Thank you.
question. Had to run to clinic, but she uh, if there are any questions that we can go ahead and ask, looks like there's enough time to have a few questions for Matt, especially on the Krebs cycle. Discuss <laughs> <laughs> the Krebs cycle. Yeah. Uh, for the uh, PLK1, you were talking about the toxicity being uh, neutropenia infections, and which are more tolerable. In the study, was there uh, generally expected admission through those toxicities, or were those treatable? Did that use up time for these patients? Yes, it, it did. Um, you know, and, and there's really no way to get around that. Um, you know, despite prophylactic antibiotics and, and antifungals and antivirals, um, you know, part of it could just be the disease itself. You know, as as and not the toxicity of the drug specifically. I mean, these patients are immunosuppressed based on their disease and not only the drug. But, but yeah, it's, it's a little optimistic to say we're going to keep all these patients out of the hospital in these final months of life because um, they all have some sort of complications stemming from the disease. And with the liver toxicities, is that just an automatic, is that just a standard? Is there any way that they're determining that they might be able to do some protection and treatment in order to? With the Mylotarg? Uh, so so that the Mylotarg is the old drug, um, and, and the new drug didn't have those. Um, it was unclear, it's, it's unclear to me at least why patients would have this, this liver toxicity um, with the Mylotarg, um, but it happened, and it, it, it's really why the, the FDA yanked it from, um, from the market. Um, and thank God, maybe it's the different chemo drug that they, they attach to the antibody with the, with the newer agent. Um, but we hopefully won't see it run into that problem. Anna? Um, with the ABT199, it looked like there was a number of patients that came off, uh, took off. Do they have the tumor lysis issues that the patient have? You know, they didn't mention that. Again, this was sort of a present in presentation form, but that's actually something I hadn't thought about. Um, that's a great question. Yeah, they, they haven't had tumor lysis syndrome with 199, so, they, they, so they stopped and made sure that their quality control was great. And so they adjusted their entire clinical profile and they treated more patients with 199 after that issue. Great, thank you. All right. Enjoy your lunch. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.